Everybody, my name is James DeFiori, and this is Blackball. We have another show. It, it's it's difficult sometimes to do an intro um, to shows like this because um, not only have I had many guests on before that have had um, awful stories to tell about their time spent in and out of the Plymouth Brethren Christian Church, aka the Plymouth Brethren Crazy Cult. But all of their stories are so unique that it is difficult sometimes to tie a bow around just how different and awful uh, personal experiences are uh, from people that have emerged as survivors from this cult. And um, today my guest would fit that bill in that she doesn't really fit any mold as none of these survivors do because of the experiences that they've had at an individual level even if it seems like it's the same and they do have a lot in common um there is always a signature type of pain that exists within the hearts and souls of all these people and um that's why we feel that their stories are not only important to tell but necessary in order to try to figure out a way to put a stop to this organization so here today is my guest and her name is beth seed beth how are you i'm good thanks for having me on james no problem. Thank you for coming. After some technical difficulties and a time zone mix-up by yours truly, <laughs> who thought that this podcast was supposed to start at 9 p.m., because apparently I still don't know how to tell time in different time zones. Um, This happened to me before, and it was Noam Chomsky, except it was his fault. At least that's the story I go by. <laughs> I'm pretty <laughs> sure it was his fault. But as time goes by, I was like, was it my fault? Because I've done this a few times now. Um, Thank you for joining us. Where are you joining us from? I am actually in Minnesota. So you taught me some geography the other day. I did, yes. Tell me about the geography that you taught me, because I bet you that nobody knows this except for you and the people that live in that slither of a sliver of land um, well, that exists I, where this exists. I kind of threw you for a loop because I called, and you were shocked to discover I was calling from North Dakota. That's right. And you didn't even mind. sound like an extra in Fargo, which was... <laughs> refreshing <laughs> we don't all sound like we're you know in the movie fargo just just so we're clear um but anyways i just said i live in a handy little spot in minnesota that is literally about a mile from north dakota and a mile from canada so i, I have actually this. been told that i sound like a canadian more than i sound like uh you know an extra from fargo <laughs> You don't sound like an extra from Fargo. That was to my shock, right? Because yeah. everyone there sounds like that. Oh, you know, you just got to have a little tapioca. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Do you have a wood chipper by any chance? Uh, well, I, I don't talk about that <laughs> okay. on podcasts. <laughs> okay, good. Um, I'm glad we can start off with a laugh because um, these, these stories, like I said in the intro, I, I do find all of the people that I've spoken to that have stories that are similar to yours in that they used to belong to this organization. Now they do not. Um, there is a co obviously a common thread, but uh, all the stories are also very completely unique. Can you, can we just start off sort of at the beginning of, of um, how old were you? How old were you uh, when you realized where you were living and, and w at what age did you become uh, sort of cognizant of your surroundings? If that makes any sense to you. So, there's a couple different pieces. If you're talking about, you know, how old was I when I realized I was part of a weird cult? Um, I, you know, pretty young when you realize that, oh, everybody is different. And you're taught from such a young age that everybody not in the cult is wicked. They're, they're bad people. So I was pretty young when I was taught that we will have a special place in heaven and we're, we're better than all those, those filthy, evil people in the world. Yeah. Uh, you know, which is a sad thing to be taught as a young child, because 
as you get older, you do realize there's a lot of bad in the world, but you maybe shouldn't have to have that shoved down your throat at the youngest possible age. Yeah. And, and I often, um, often when, when I have a female ex member, I am, I'm super curious. Actually, there's a flip side question to the men too, that I don't think I've, um, I'm guilty of not asking them, but I should, and I'll make a point of it too, from here on in, but the, at, what it must be like in hindsight to know the types of things that they would instill in young women to make them feel like a second-class citizen. Definitely. Definitely. Women are second-class citizens. I mean, we're, we were just not, not considered nearly, nearly as intelligent. I, I mean, from the, from the word go, you know, you walk into meeting and their rooms are, you know, dish shaped, they're a, a circle and the women are on the outer edges. They aren't even really allowed to participate. And so from literally old enough to comprehend, you realize as a little girl, you will never be as special as your brother or your dad or your male cousins, whoever. And it definitely takes a toll on your confidence. I have told many people since I've left, I am a very different person. I think that people that probably knew me in the Brethren wouldn't recognize who I am as far as my personality goes. Um, mm -hmm. I am far more confident and willing to speak my mind, say whatever's on my mind. I don't care if I'm a weirdo. I own my weirdness. It's fine. Whereas... In the brethren, you're so uh, is it crushed. You're pushed down. You're just you feel that you your words aren't important. So why would you say them? And yeah. you're definitely not as intelligent. So why would you offer your opinion? And that's a sad thing to grow up knowing. And it makes me sad knowing I have nieces still in there that are going through those same feelings. Um, and that that just breaks my heart. It really does. Yeah. No. It, and I mean, I I can't think of very many examples in my life where I there might have been my Italian relatives that were really old when I was really young. I I seem to remember dinners where, uh, you know, the men would sit back and and light a cigarette as the women cleared the dishes. Or, and I remember other than the cigarette, where you were almost like on the brother and track there. <laughs> right. Well, sorry. How about a whiskey on the rock? Yeah. Something there you like go. That. Now you're yeah. on it. <laughs> yeah. You know. And and I remember thinking, uh, even as like I don't know, seven, eight year old or whatever. Well, this is weird. Uh, you know. And I I think I might have even have a memory where I you know where I tried to bring my own plate and, um, you know, like an aunt took it and 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 an uncle was like. No, no, don't, don't worry. She'll take care of it. It's fine. You know, sit down. And I was just like, "All right, Uncle Joey, whoever the fuck you are." Like, you know. Yes. And and, and I, I, then I imagine then now. Okay, so that's that memory, that one little nugget of a memory. And then I think of what you, um, kind of grew up in, and what that must have been like on a daily basis. Yeah, and women were almost shamed if they didn't help out, like at a you know, their Sunday lunches where you're entertaining, you know, oh, huge numbers of people. I, I think good grief. I get anxious if I'm having, you know, six people over, you know, my mom used to entertain often. It was, it was a table of 30 people and, Jesus. It's a and lot of whiskey, a, a lot. Do you know how much it costs to stock up on whiskey for like a, a three-day meeting or something? I remember it literally being like a major expenditure for my parents yeah. was the, the booze. I wonder if they start off the meetings where they're like, you know, Ken, uh, maybe we should really think twice about how we're treating our women. And then like flash to like two hours later, like, you remember that time you were trying to suggest that we were going to treat women better? Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah that, that's hilarious. Let's not do that. Why would we no, do a silly thing like that? Right. But the alcohol is so prevalent in, in yes. the brethren culture. That's what I'm really getting at is that, that you know, I'm, obviously I'm being sarcastic there, but, you know, it, it must play some role. Oh, it has to. It yeah. has to because, I mean, yeah. And, and. You know, I think they use it, a lot of them, as almost a, 
a numbing agent, if you will, you know, mm. to forget about what they're dealing with, what they're living with. Some of them, they just, they want to keep the blinders on and the alcohol helps with that, I think is also part of the alcohol issue too. Right. Okay. Um, Jen uh, says, start the meeting by punching the elders in the face. That be- has real value. I, I like the suggestion. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Uh, I mean, they might frown upon it, but yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, so now you're growing up and, um, give me a sense then, um, I don't want to tiptoe around this too much. I, I, I just want to sort of let you tell your story. Um, but I think, um, you know, the dynamic, especially of, of the thing that you went through, um, and who the person was is, is really kind of there's no delicate way to sort of intro that. So, you know, why don't you just start wherever you want and, sure. um, and I'll let so you So I, uh, I kind of, you know, when I, and, and this is something up until about two, three years ago, I never talked about at all. And I find myself talking about it quite a lot now. And it's like, wow, this is, this is weird. But I feel it's important to share because it's something that, a lot of people, men, women, children go through sexual abuse. And so it is something we do need to talk about to make it something you can talk about rather than stuff it down and turn it into a thing where suddenly you can't live with it anymore. Mm-hmm. But my story kind of starts with, I, I grew up in a, a, as normal a household as you could probably have in the brethren. Um, I, my dad and mom, I had three older siblings, a brother and two sisters and we had a very normal home life. I mean, it was it was almost a happy little bubble, if you will. And uh, said bubble was definitely burst when um, I was eight years old. It was a Friday night. I remember the priests coming over and it was this big deal. All us kids were sent to our rooms and, and next thing... Um, mom came upstairs and she told us um your dad and i are being confined tonight which in brother in terms they call it shut up confined you named it but basically you're kicked out and uh so my dad and mom couldn't go to meeting and me and my sister closest in age stayed home my two older siblings went and yep sure enough dad and mom were kicked out that night and so then the next day um, April 1st of 95, um, the priest showed up and they really recommended that, well, us children should be with the brethren. I, uh, as I said, I was the youngest, I was eight. Um, my older siblings were 16, 15, 14. Um, and so it was decided, uh, one sister went to one other brother and household one went to another one and it was decided that my brother and I should stay together or go to the same place anyways. So we ended up going to my uncle and aunts. Um, they live just down the street from my folks, you know, two houses away. Um, and they had two children at home at that time, uh, a boy and a girl. And, uh, my cousin Don, was um five years older than me and within uh no time of arriving there he started sexually abusing me and um i i didn't know how to handle it you know i was scared of him don't tell anyone you know you're always don't tell anyone in hindsight if i could go back You know, I'd tell that little eight-year-old girl, just for crying out loud, tell somebody, (laughs) tell anybody. But you don't know that when you're eight. And uh, Plus, you don't have your parents, you know, like you're you're in a new environment with with people that you know. My uncle and aunt were very different personalities than my parents. I didn't have that same relationship with them. And plus, you know, you kind of feel like, well, he's their kid. Why? Why would they believe me? you know, and he's going to deny it. And uh, it's actually interesting because um, I'll just segue off for a second here. So I did finally, a 
couple of years ago, I did tell my parents this happened. And um, my mom actually called me a couple weeks later and she was bawling. She was going through a folder of some of my schoolwork and she found something I had actually made. They would have been confined at the time, but I had made it for Mother's Day in 1995. And it was a school project where you were asked to thank your mom for things. And the very first thing I had written was, I love my mom for keeping me safe when she is with me. Mm. And she said, now I know what that meant you know, because I wasn't safe at the time I wrote that I wasn't safe. And I knew that. And I don't remember writing that. I have no recollection of that at all. But I didn't feel safe. And in uh, late June of that year, I, one day after lunch, I told my aunt I was going out in the yard to play and I just walked home. I just strolled into my parents' house, which you just didn't do. They were confined. They were off limits. You didn't talk to them. You didn't wave at them. You didn't acknowledge them, let alone just go home. And I I just told my mom I wanted to come home. And uh, after, you know, some chatting with my dad and her, and, you know, it was kind of this flurry of activity for a little while, it was decided that, nope, I, I should go back. Because the only right place for me is with the brethren. And let me explain something to you that I'm very firm on. The only right place for an eight-year-old is with their parents. If those parents can truly love and care for them. Yes. It's not with some other random people just because they're in the church. Wow. So um, the abuse continued for a couple of years. Um, I, I mean, I can remember getting almost caught numerous times being shoved in a closet because someone was coming in the room. Um, and I finally, again, you know, I look back and can beat myself up all over the place, but I finally got smart enough to never be alone with him. You know, I, I can remember sitting at their kitchen table and he was in the dining room and, you know, come in here. You know, he wanted to get me to come with him. And I wouldn't, I, I got smart enough, thank God. And finally, finally managed to stop it. Um, how old were you at that point? Like 11 or something? Or? 10. By 10. the time it stopped, okay. I was 10. Yep. Yep. But you know, good for you. I, I, um, you know, I like, know there was other girls he was touching at that oh, for same sure. time. You know, it was not just me. And I just asked myself, how how did it just stop? Did it stop? Or did he just move on to different prey? You know, I, and that's what scares me. And that's what makes me unwilling to shut up about it. Yeah. Um, because I want to make sure this is not something still going on. And so were you able, I'm just curious, were you able to find out if there were other people? Was it a strong instinct or was it something that you discovered? So I, I mean, I witnessed you know, a couple other girls. So I, that there's no question in my mind. I know it happened with others around my age. I have no idea if it continued. I know later on, you know, I was probably more like 17, 18, 19. He was older by then. I I mean, even married and he was very inappropriate with teenage girls, you know, tickling, Mm -hmm. not, not, not appropriate. And I think, well, if that's what you were willing to do in public when there's other people around, what's happening when there isn't other people around. And that's scary stuff. That's scary stuff. And so, but you still had to cohabitate with him. Yeah. For another, at least another four or five years, I'm imagining. No, it was only another two years. My, my parents were, whatever sin they had committed um they had apparently atoned for it by uh the time i was 12 years old and Mm -hmm. i went home and you know how weird that is you know you haven't lived with 
all your siblings or your parents in three and a half years and suddenly, oh, let's let's be a happy family. Yeah. When you were two houses away. Yeah. And they were confined. Yeah. Did you see them in passing? Oh, daily. Daily. And were you you allowed to to even nod at them or talk to them? Or was it like complete like um, like silent treatment? Well, my mom actually later, you know, when I was older would joke that, you know, if she was outside in the garden or on the step or something, I would regularly ride by on my bike and I would always look over and smile and just kind of lift my hands a little and, and wave. I would drop behind the other kids I was with, you know, so they wouldn't see me do this. That is heartbreaking. Um, Well, it's, it, it's traumatizing. You know it, it's you traumatizing. Know it, reminds, it, it reminds me of, sorry to cut you off, but no, it's just fine. the image in my head. I'm going to go off on, on a little thing here for a second because um, there were uh, relatives of mine. It was my sister's husband's dad um, was a German citizen whose family um, were forced to send their kids to the Hitler Youth Army. Oh. And they went to this camp in Prague and they're like the same age as, as you were basically. They were like 10, right? And they were um, they were situated in the same camp, but the boys and girls were separated. And the only time that they saw each other was when they were marching through the town square. And they couldn't break formation and they couldn't stop doing what they were doing. But they always found the moment where their eyes would lock out of, went out of the corner of the eye when they would dart over. And that's what that reminded me of. That forced yeah. separation doctrine that uh, uh, that makes it even conceivable that, yeah. uh, uh, that a little girl can't run and run and hug their mommy when yep. they see her is fucking awful it's atrocious really and by the way is the signature move in this cult this cult oh. shutting up confinement separation doctrine thing is one of the more psychotic tools of manipulation i have ever heard of ever and and one of my most frustrating things that they drive me insane with nowadays is you know they love to preach that they don't break up families. They don't do this. And, you know, even my mom, when I called her out on it, you know, talked about how utterly devastating that time was in my life, how it, it totally changed my psyche. It changed how I look at relationships. It changed a lot of things in my life. And she'll say, but that, you know, that was then. And it's like, uh, that crap still goes on. You know, it, it might be slightly different, but it's still happening. There's still families being broken up. If a husband wants to leave and his wife doesn't, good luck to him getting to see his kids. That yeah. is breaking up a family. That is breaking up a family. So don't lie to us and tell you, you know, tell us you don't break up families. You do. You have for years. Absolutely. Hi, I'm Steve Yurko. And I'm Tara Sands. Now available from Maji Media is our new podcast, Four Kids Flashback. Four Kids is the company who brought you the English dub of Pokemon in the late 90s and so many other shows like Yu-Gi-Oh!, Shaman King, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Kirby, the infamous One Piece dub, and so many more. We'll be talking to the people who worked at Four Kids. Actors, directors, writers, editors, producers, engineers, you get the point. And hopefully get the answers to questions both you and I have about the company. I actually worked there as a voice actor on some of the shows. And I was a kid watching the shows and remember way more than Tara does. And thank God for that. Steve is actually a professional storyboard artist, which gives some really unique insights into anime and animation. Subscribe today wherever you get your podcasts. That's the number four kids flashback. And and it's, and it's, it is the most popular thing that I've, that I've heard from all of the people that I have interviewed um, that that belong to this group. And, and it, it, the really kind of, you know, I'm trying to figure out a way to, to sort of explain how emotionally bankrupt you have to be in order to set up rules like that, in order to control people to stay where you want them to stay. Like, it, it, it has to be... It's you, the you control... It's just yeah. mind-numbing. Okay, so you're back at home. Yes. And and how does life change for you when, when you're back at home with your parents? Because as you mentioned, um, 
you, you know, when you're not living together for three and a half years, all of a sudden you're trying to, and now by, by this time, your siblings are in their late teens, right? Yep. Well, and my brother got married a short time later because by then he's 20 and for them that's normal. And so for me, I'll tell people, you know, we kind of lived in that, that bubble and then, you know, they got back and it was, you know, you tried to kind of get the bubble back together and it just never happened. The pieces never fit together quite the same way. And I feel, um, obviously I, I don't have much of a relationship with my parents at all at this point. And I've been gone for 15 years. Um, and the couple times I've seen them in that time, they seem very good together, very happy. But when they first got back, I remember thinking like, it was almost scary to me because they seemed to fight a lot. They seemed angry with each other a lot. And that was super scary to me because again, in the brother and divorce is not an option. So that was very unsettling and it, it did get better. And like I say, when I've seen them the few times, they seem very good, very happy. And, and so I think, I think they're good in that way, but I just think how much does that mess with them? Your kids are torn away from you for three and a half years. That that has to mess with your relationship too. Oh my gosh. Just an instinct for guilt that you should have. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Like you were eight. Okay. My 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 son is eight. My daughter's six. Yeah. You can't imagine I, just being like, here, you can have them for three and a half years. I can imagine punching and the person that suggests that I should do that right in the face. I, I could easily see myself doing that, yep. but no, but I can't, but that just sort of, um, accentuates the, the tight control that they had. Right. Yes. And, and it's, and it's that whole thing that, um, you know, like boiling frog, right? Like, like, you know, if, if you're in a certain type of ecosystem your entire life, that's all that, you know, Yes. And I think that is the case for a lot of them. It is, this is, this is all they know. And they are, I, you know, my mom is a very smart person. I've, I've reached out to her multiple times and I think for her, she just, she can't imagine a world where she isn't brethren. Like, like she, she can't wrap her head around that because it's all she's known but it's so frustrating because I just think you don't know what you're living in compared to what you could be living in, the kind of relationships you could have, the kind of life you could live. They, they convince you so from day one that if you leave, your world is going to fall apart. Everything is going to collapse. You're not going to have anything. And, you know, um, I can remember this actually just, I don't know why I thought of this the other day, totally randomly, but I remember them saying like, you won't fit in, in the world. So you won't be part of the world, but you also won't be part of the brother and you will have no one. And I look around at my life and I, I like to think I fit in. Okay. <laughs> I am, you know, I'm the average weirdo like everyone else. So, I mean, I, I think I fit in just fine, but it's that fear. They work really hard to instill in you from a very young age that you leave, you will crash and burn. And sadly it, it works for a lot of the members. It does control them. It keeps them tied you know, as in As you're there. speaking, um, for the very first time, even though I've been dealing with this um, topic and this world, this universe, uh, for we're closing in on a year, I think, in, in a couple months. Uh, the uh, We live in an era where a person's identity is so important, and we're building rights around people's identities. And when you said that you couldn't, that I... I, if I heard you correctly, that your your mom couldn't even imagine not being brethren. I, what the the thing that popped into my mind was identity, and 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 because it's I guess it's I it, it's my way of trying to understand what it would be like to be in the mindset of a person who only knows that. Yeah. And and you say, so so if you try to be rational about it and be like, okay, what if I did put myself in this person's shoes? Would it um 
would it make sense to me that uh, taking away my identity would scare me? And I'm like, of course it would. But then there's that other side to that too. And, um, and we talked about this over the phone a little bit, and I've heard other people say similar things on this podcast. That the person that, um, that did this to you, because of their age, there is some responsibility, and I don't, I don't, I'll leave it to you to decide how much, because I don't know, but just in a general sense, that they, while they're responsible for their actions, what happened to them, and did they act in a way that was because they were raised by brethren principles? Yes, it is. It's something that I've tried to come to terms with a little bit. Um, and I struggle, as I said to you, I, I want to be mad at him. I, I want to be mad at him, uh, and not feel sympathy for him at all because he took a lot away from me. He took away every bit of my innocence, um, and a lot of trust. And so I want to, I want to feel nothing but anger, but there is that little piece of me that says maybe he went through some things too that being raised in the brethren does change who you are and i touched on this just a little bit on the get a life podcast you know there's zero education in the brethren as far as sexual things and i feel like if you don't educate children then they try and teach themselves and they don't always do that in a healthy way. No, they don't. Um, and I had Terry Smith on the other day who, you know, we, we, we sort of um, went back and forth a little bit and likened the behavior of um, these men that would flirt or abuse uh, teenage girls as sort of like the grown-up equivalent of the little boy that runs across the schoolyard and pulls a pigtail and then runs away. Like yes. that's how smooth they are as grown men. Yes. And as funny as that is, and I, it is kind of funny, but it's also dangerous and it's, it's very sad because I guess, you know, there's that fine line between um, bad behavior and a bad influence that causes you to, to, to do bad things. It, it, it is such a gray area sometimes. It, it absolutely is because you know you could you could say someone that is has been through something like that well then they're automatically going to do that to the next person that and it's like no that that's not the case so it doesn't excuse him entirely if something terrible happened to him it doesn't excuse him entirely because you can break that cycle but also he was a male in the brethren and they are raised that they are entitled to a certain yeah number of things and that kind of takes away, you know, your rights as a little girl right there. Yeah. It's kind of game over. Did your parents have an inkling? No, 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 not a clue. So um, that kind of um, is a separate part of the story. So I... I left the Brethren when I was 21 in 2008. As I mentioned, I'm closing in really fast on my 15-year anniversary. And I ran as far and fast away from it as I could. I pretended that part of my life never existed. I didn't talk about it at all. I built a new life. I made new friends. I virtually did not speak of that part of my life. During that time... I talked to my mom at least once a week, sometimes twice a week, but at least once a week on Monday mornings for sure. It was just normal to call and just say, hello, how are you? Just very brief chat. There was no information exchanged, but just a check-in. And uh, that, you know, forgetting about the first 21 years of your life worked great right up until it didn't. And I... uh, I had been gone about, uh, it would be about 11 years, and I started processing things a little bit. 
I was, you know, thinking about things. You can only run away from things so long. And I started to really have a massive breakdown. I was super depressed. I was suicidal. I was crying all the time. The littlest things would send me over the edge. I was a mess. And thank goodness, a couple co-workers actually saw what was happening and just said, you know, you, you should probably go in and, and just talk to your doctor about what's going on. Well, as luck would have it, my doctor happened to be someone that grew up in a community with brethren. She was very familiar with brethren. I knew her before I left the brethren. And so she knew a little bit of my story and, and she got me on some meds, but she said, you need to talk to someone. And I will owe her forever for setting me up with a really good therapist. And I started talking about some of this stuff. I did not talk about my sexual abuse until I believe it was December of 2019. That was the first I had spoken of it out loud to anyone, including my husband. Nobody knew about it. And uh, about six, seven months later, after a lot of conversations and therapy, I decided to send a letter to my parents telling them about this. Actually, I sent an email. And the initial response I got was, Beth, we have received your email. We need some time to process. We'll be in touch. And, you know, my response upon reading that was, well, if you need time to process, just imagine how I feel. Yeah. <laughs> it's not really about you. <laughs> well, you know, like, yeah, not really. Yeah. And uh well, in a way it is. In a way it is. You're right. Yeah. And again, something I kind of had to process is that I do hold them responsible for some of it. I oh, do. Yeah. I I won't say that the bulk of my anger is directed at them, but some of it is because you were my parents you had the responsibility at the end of the day to keep me safe and sending me away to live with this monster was not keeping me safe. So they then actually, once they did respond, it was a couple days later, actually were very supportive up front. Um, they reached out often, checked in, they, over and over told me how sorry they were i had been through this that they didn't know and on and on and on and um i wanted to know are you going to do anything about this is anything going to happen you know this happened now so now what yeah oh you know they brought it to the priests of course and uh so the the priests went and talked to him about it, and he admitted everything. Everything. Wow. Which shocked me. Wow. I figured he would deny it. Nope. Admitted everything. And then the part that still makes me ill, he uh, asked my dad and mom if he could come over to their house and uh, talk to them. My mom told me this on the phone and I will never, till the day I die, I will never forget exactly where I was, exactly every bit of this conversation. Um, yeah, he came over, he sat down at the kitchen table and he proceeded to tell them everything he had done to me. And I... Uh, that is shocking. I was physically sick. When I heard that, um, what do you think was his motive nefarious or I was cannot, it confessional? I cannot wrap my head around what the motive would be. I can't. Um, because to me, oh, ah, sorry. It, um, it makes me sick to think about it. I certainly hate to think of the fact that my parents heard this stuff. And even more than that, I hate to think of the fact that he 
remembers and thinks about it. That's the part that literally makes me ill. I can't, I can't deal with that. It's like, please. There's so many possible contexts to oh, so his many motivation. Right? And so when I kind of had myself under control a little bit, I said to my mom, I said, did dad punch him in the face? Because honestly, I kind of hoped he did. That man would not leave my house alive. And, 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 and I mean that. Like, and she said, uh, she said, well, it was a close thing. And so. Sorry. Sorry. I don't mean to react. So. No, you know. I. Yeah, that's how I felt. So it was shortly after that. I told them, you know, I, I want something to happen. Like, I want you to show me that he's facing some consequences, any consequences. I did reach out to law enforcement but unfortunately, because he was a minor at the time and I was a minor at the time, it does change what what he would really be charged with, if anything. And frankly, I don't feel at this time, and I don't know if I ever would be able to, that I could make a report and actually have to make, you know, lay down details. It's just... I don't want to think about it. And I just don't know if I ever, ever would be able to actually do that. So the legal side of it was kind of off the table for me, but I wanted him to face some sort of consequences, you know, in the brother and like, show me something. My parents got confined for some, who knows what random reason, uh, what like sort of punishment? Their tithing didn't come in, right? Exactly. Something. Like, yeah. what sort of random, re, you know, punishment are we going to give somebody that sexually abused a child? And uh, the more I asked, the more I pushed, the cooler the conversations started to go, <sighs> and I could tell they were pushing away. And they didn't like that I was questioning a lot of things about the Brethren at this time. And um, in the end of August that year, they completely cut off contact with me. Wow. I was confined myself, had never been confined yet, um, even though I'd been, you know, living in the wicked world. I was confined just a short time later. And then just this past January, my dad told me that I had been withdrawn from, which is the next level badness like pretty much the baddest of the bad so that's me. well that, but I mean, you left so like 15 years ago isn't it crazy i i think it's just hilarious and it's so telling that you didn't confine me until i started questioning you and pointing out issues then you confined me well first of all they don't understand the definition of the word confined no, no, that too. And, and, you know, you were was, abandoned public well, brethren and because you, uh, my parents have abdicated their responsibilities to me yes. and then I abandoned the cult Yes. and you guys can confine whatever the fuck you want, but it's not going to be me. Well, you know? and as I said to my dad, when he called to tell me, you know, my only, only little bit of sadness is simply the fact that I know to them, to my dad and mom, it's so devastating that I've been withdrawn from, you know, as far as they're concerned, I'm, I'm a lost cause. I am the worst of the worst. And I know to them, that's a huge deal. And it's very sad, but I straight out told my dad, I said, that's your term. That's your term. It means nothing to me. You telling me that I'm confined or you telling me I'm withdrawn from that's your term. I, it means you, you're like I'm, I'm just curious because you seem like the kind of person that that might say this but in a situation like that have you ever just gone like this you know that you're in a cult right dad like oh. you know that you're you know yes yes <laughs> really? i have absolutely done that i i actually one of the first things i had sent them was a 12 point list signs that you were in a cult yeah and literally the brother and check every one of those things is one of those things turning a blind eye to the abuse and torture of your daughter because... um, i i don't know if it was quite that specific okay. but right. along those lines but yeah. yeah and you know i was so i 
I was so hopeful when I sent that. I'm not even going to lie. Like I really thought it would have an impact. And all I got out of my mom on that was we are rock solid in our faith. Those are her words, rock solid in our position in the brethren. Wow. I'm like, all right, well, I mean, what, what do I say? Fantastic mom. That yes. Yes. And for a while there, I went through a really angry phase where I was just so frustrated and so angry with them. And I've sort of gotten to the point where I've almost washed my hands of that side of it, where it's like, you're, you're going to do what you're going to do with that said, I am not going to just stop fighting because there are other people, other Mm -hmm. girls, boys, whoever going through things that are stuck in this because that's how they're being raised and they don't deserve this. They don't, they don't deserve it at all. I, yeah, it's, a a huge pet peeve of mine is people that will tell me, you know, just move on and live your life and be happy. And it's like, I do, I am, I, I do live a good life and I am happy, but that doesn't mean that I have to forget about the fact that there are people that are still going through some of these things that I went through. It doesn't mean that I should shut up and stop talking about some of these things because they're still going on. I am not going to just turn a blind eye. Yeah. Um, just as like an offering of uh, sort of good faith here. I, I, I have... Um... I have experiences that I can um, relate with you on on that level, and there was no cult involved in my in my situation, but uh, it involved a parent, and I know how difficult it is to talk about that without the added um, baggage of knowing that you can never see your loved ones again. And I offer you this information, and I normally don't. Right, and I, but I'm, I'm telling you this, I think, because I, I, I think I want you to know, even though you may have heard this before, that there is a, a sense of camaraderie that I think people feel when they hear someone like yourself speak about these issues, and they have never said anything before. In fact, I'll credit you tonight with, although I'm not going to give any other details. <laughs> of giving me the ability to connect with you on that level with what I just told you. And I think that um, the, the reason why I think it's, it's, it's super important that people like yourself and Cheryl and Lane and, um, and golden uh, Marsh Terry boy. and pardon me, golden Marsh boy. Yes. Yes. And Richard and, and all these people that have had these, well, well, specifically the, the, the abuse experiences, um, you know, they're, there is such an obvious moral high ground to fight this fight. Like yes. it is not something that is subjective. It, it, I am not, um, uh, I, I do not approach this as a journalist. Uh, I, I am an advocate for you guys now and that, that is new for me. <laughs> but I feel a kind of, kinship with you uh with with the ex-members that i've spoken with and um you know i I think that part of me thinks that you know this but you're humble as well so you probably don't like saying it but it is very brave of you to to talk about this stuff (laughs) i i don't feel strong and i don't i've told people if i ever write a book i'm gonna name it not strong and not brave (laughs) (laughs) because I don't feel very strong or very brave a lot of the time, especially when I end up crying on your podcast. Um, yeah. <laughs> but Better you than me. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, it uh, it was amazing to me after I was on the Get a Life podcast how many women I had reach out, not not necessarily that had been in the cult, just women in the community that I know that have been through similar things or maybe totally different things but yet it's still abuse of a sort and saying we there was one gal that said like i've never talked to anyone about this ever but i appreciate that you shared your story and i think that's why it is important 
to talk about. It's not easy. It's awkward. These are uncomfortable conversations and situations to talk about. But courage is contagious. And we have to acknowledge Courage is contagious. Yes. And and I think that, um, you know, I I am, uh, I'm just super pleased that I can, um, you know, be a part of someone else's, you know, courageous journey. I, I, you know, I, I feel, I feel more like a bellhop, right? And I'm fine with that. I, I, I like that role. You know, welcome to the show, Miss Miss Seed. And you know, can I get you anything? You know, like, um, I, I'd rather be that guy. And, and um, but you are very. Um, first of all, you like, are you baked? Because you look a little stone. And I'm, I, I totally want you. To be. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm not. I did consider having a drink, but then I thought that would be a little too brown. You have one of those. Things, what so. do we used to call those uh, in college? That my buddy and I used to call people that had they had a certain type of face where you're like they look stone, but they're not because they're 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 like the happy heart shaped face people whose eyes slit when they smile. <laughs> I, it's just that I'm a little fat. <laughs> it's, not, it's, not. it's your eye slitting. Oh, so funny. <laughs> Um, oh, listen, uh, uh, we have to go because another show is starting soon. Um, it turns out my, my error in, yeah. uh, the scheduling has a cascading effect <laughs> on other things. <laughs> I'm no, sorry that's my fault. That. That's, that yeah. is absolutely my fault. Um, listen, I, I'm, I'm, I'm really happy that you came and, uh, I, I'm sorry that it took so long. Um, it's funny cause, uh, we were snarky with each other sometimes in that group chat with the, with yeah, the yeah, yeah. Yeah. We've harassed each other a lot, but just never, never. Actually it's awesome though. Cause I know that, so. I know that now I know the face yes. is this perma stoned person named Beth seed, <laughs> which is amazing. Cause I'm a pothead. Totally right? me. Yes. Call yes. me. We can be sticks and stones. That could be great. Yes. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, Thank and, you so uh, much I have, for I, everything you do for us because it's huge we we couldn't do what we do thank you i'm a bellhop and that's all it is Uh, you guys are the brave ones um but i appreciate you saying that i just have one last question though you you know your rebellious nature you just fucking leave the dishes lying around now (laughs) you know sometimes i do actually do that you know i also (laughs) I also no longer go to meeting at seven o'clock every night either. Yeah, right. Yeah, that's right. Not even <laughs> in your mind, eh? Throw caution to the wind. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Betsy, thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate thank it. Thank you for having me. It was no wonderful. Problem. We'll see you soon. Okay. Yeah, bye bye. Wow. How likable was she? I mean she just seems like a really nice person. You know? And uh, you know, you know what's really interesting about uh, all of these people that I now know is that, um, you know, I was just going to say they're a little culty. I was just joking though, but the, the, they all get along so well together because they have this common thread. And, um, there have been a situation or two that has taken place where we believe that the brethren has tried to like infiltrate our crew, I guess you would say with these kind of, um, and, and sometimes they're clever. Sometimes they're not. They always try to like fish uh, our phones and computers and stuff. I get like 30 of them a day. They also have a, um, the brethren uh, have begun a, an attempt uh, ever since we like infiltrated their Zoom meeting. We had that audio that we played, the Bruce Hales audio um, from a little while back. They they have like canceled Zoom meetings and they have done other things and um, we even think that they've tried and I won't say what it was whatever even what country but we even think that they've tried because we talk to people inside right I can say that's about as much as I can say though that there's people on the inside of this cult that we now communicate with and the it is so interesting to see the people that are out. And the compassion that they have for the people that are still in. And what that means to the people that are still in. And it is an amazing thing to witness. Um, it, it is it is its own little subculture. You know, it's like, you know, I don't even know what to compare it to. Like the way that, the way that, well, fuck it, the way that hip hop culture kind of was like it, it kind of what the way that you could tell that somebody was like into the same thing as you um is the way that they speak to each other and the way that they kind of have this like uh, oh yeah like they they share a sense of humor 
they share sort of a uh, way of communicating that is leftovers from how they grew up and what they escaped from. But they've managed to turn it into a really neat kind of asset to have when they communicate with each other. It's fascinating. And um, anyways, that was a very long-winded way of saying that um, when Beth emerged, uh, there was no doubt in any of their minds uh, from the get-go. Um, oh, and another really convenient thing is is how there's it's such a small group in a lot of ways that last names are familiar to people that live in localities that are thousands of miles apart. So, you know, they, they, they have an interesting way of being able to uh, identify um, people who are just legit ex-members versus people who are uh, have nefarious purposes for contacting you. It's it's really interesting, and and I'm I'm so happy that I can be some small play some small role in in fostering the escape that that these people that are still inside are striving towards. It is a trip, let me tell you. So again, big thanks to Beth. Um, I appreciate you coming. Um, Appreciate you giving me the courage to, to even just share that little thing that I did. Like that's, you know, it, yeah, it, it, it's contagious. And, uh, and that was uh, unexpected. Maybe I should start writing things down. Maybe I should stop sharing. <laughs> That'd be a good idea. <clears throat> Maybe I should just have one post-it note that says stop sharing. That'd be good. Um, okay. Tomorrow, uh, someone sent me this, uh, I think it was you, Saucy Sea Witch. AKA James 2.0 um, sent me this video. I'm not going to play it. I'm going to play it tomorrow when I have Karima Sad on the show, friend of the show, Karima. And it is hilarious and really kind of sad at the same time. It looks like it's like this 12 year old kid. I don't know. Maybe they're 30. You know how it is nowadays. Um, and they are, are trying to do this examination of Karima and they're like, it's almost like they're deliberately getting everything wrong. They were like showing all of her Instagram videos and really characterizing her as some sort of grifter. And I'm just like, so weird. It is very bizarre seeing people that don't get Karima, that don't understand what she's all about. Um, you have to be willfully blind. And now she's getting it so hard from uh, people that claim to be on the left that um, it's making me a little upset. It's uh, summoning my inner Joe Pesci to come out. And uh, what kind of what kind of people are these, Karima? I could do better because the line is actually what kind of people are these, Henry? And that's supposed to be my Joe Pesci from Goodfellas, but I haven't done it in a while. And I was always drunk when I did it, which was always better. Um, but nonetheless, Karima's getting beat up on, and it, and it pisses me off. So she's going to be on tomorrow. We're going to talk about that. And then on Friday we have Casual Fridays. We have Nate from the Breakdown, and we have Ryan Lindley, of course, and uh, a few other surprises. Ryan is going to take control over the show again because apparently last week um, some stuff happened. I regret nothing. I don't regret a thing. <laughs> but anyways, um, the format might change a little bit in order to avoid uh, me not feeling bad about things that I do. <laughs> Love you, Danielle. And we'll see you next time on Black Pole. Black Pole. Super Friends is a monthly meeting of five podcast producers. Hi, I'm Catherine O'Brien from Branch Out Programs in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I'm John Gay from Jagged Detroit Podcasts. I'm Matt Kundle from the Sound Off Podcast Network. I'm David Yes from Pod 617, the Boston Podcast Network. And I'm Johnny Peterson from Straight Up Podcasts. Together, they form the Podcast Super Friends, an alliance of podcast masterminds sharing best practices, insights, and discussions to help make you a better podcaster. Follow or subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or at soundoff.network. I'm Matt Kundle, host of the Sound Off Podcast. 
the show about podcast and broadcast. Since 2016, we've been speaking with amazing people who have populated your ears for decades. Legendary broadcasters, research wizards, talent experts, podcasters, voice talent, almost 400 stories, all for free. Subscribe or follow the Sound Off Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at soundoffpodcast.com.